the other thing that I often hear, this commonly used phrase of, I don't want to open the can of worms. You know, if I ask this question, where are we going to go with this? So today is What Matters to You Day, WMTY, um, which is part of the whole personalised care agenda, looking at changing the relationships um, within care to make sure that we look at and talk about the things that really, really matter. So today like, felt like a pretty tropical chance for Joe and I to sit down and talk a little bit more about what personalised care actually is. You've probably heard about it, it was in the long-term plan, even Matt Hancock, um, who at the time of recording was Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, even he's talking about it. So I'm Anya de Jong, patient editor here at the BMJ. Um, I'm really passionate about personalised care, um, both from my own experience um, as a patient, having experienced and not experienced um, person-centred approaches, um, but also having worked both locally and nationally and having seen the impact it can make for individuals and staff. Um, so it's something I'm really passionate about um, and it's great to have the opportunity to chat about it as part of the BMJ today. Hi, I'm Joe Fraser. Um, I, uh, I was diagnosed with uh, type 1 diabetes when I was um, 13 uh, and it was really I found it very difficult to um, come to terms with it and to, to take control of it. Uh, but when I did, um, I decided to try and pass on some of my um, some of what I'd learned. Uh, and um, and it was from that basis uh, that I started up a little company called Joe's Diabetes. And then from there, I eventually found myself in the uh, NHS working in personalised care. So in the long-term plan, they talked about having five major practical changes for the NHS. And up there on number three was people having more control over their health and more personalised care. So we've heard it as this massive buzzword, there's loads of rhetoric around it. So Joe, what does this actually mean on a practical basis for you? Ooh, on a practical basis, right. So it's, it's, um, it would mean the health service or, or a clinician or a nurse thinking about you more than just your long-term condition or whatever you've gone in to see them about so it's really about how health fits with the rest of your life as opposed to the way that we do it now which is to say health is the most important thing which is why you're here and I don't care how you live your life that's the most important thing so I'm going to give you the answer for your health uh, problem and not care about how it fits for you. Mm. I think that's pretty same same as my definition really as well I think we hear lots around personalised carers kind of being nice to people making sure they've had like a good experience being really compassionate and I think from my perspective and you kind of touched on it a bit as well it's that kind of enabling approach as well so it's making sure that you know I get the care that's right for me in the context of you know my condition and the rest of my life but also that I've got that kind of confidence to live well with it and that I can have more of that sort of different relationship with my healthcare professionals so it's kind of personalized to me but it's a it's a different relationship as well yeah it's very much about a different relationship it's about sort of um uh, injecting a bit of balance into into the sort of the power dynamics around around health so instead of um uh, the doctor being being the expert and and the patient being the person who knows nothing uh, it's about saying well actually that that patient has a lot of expertise about their own life mm. so it's got to be kind of um, uh, sort of tailored tailored to people so that they can they can put it into practice in a way that makes sense to them mm. um, you know it's all very well and good um, saying 
I don't know. So I'm uh, I have type one diabetes. So it's about saying, okay, well, Joe, you, your your uh, blood sugar levels have to be within certain limits all the time. Um, but there are lots of different factors for me that that can push that off course one way or another. And so it's about sort of empowering me in in this instance to say, well, if you're going to do I don't know if you're going to do weights, if you go to the gym and do weights, your your adrenaline is likely to go up, and that's going to push your your mm-hmm. blood sugar level up. Yeah. But then it's because of the effects of the of the exercise, it will bring your blood sugar level down over a long period of time. And so it's to it's to kind of be empowered to know, okay, well, if I'm going to if if I'm going to go a bit high not to take any insulin then to mm. bring bring it low because then I'm or bring it back within within range because it, I will end up going low because the because the exercise will bring it down lower yeah so it's, it's sort of giving giving I don't know some kind of clear guidance around what to expect how how to how do you manage your life on a day-to-day basis mm. that's a really interesting example about that kind of short-term and long-term stuff around health so the stuff that you might need to do to manage in the short term might be slightly different or if not sometimes probably the opposite to what you need to do then to manage over a longer period of of time and as as patients I know with um with my conditions it was that balance of kind of you know doing what was right for me today like doing some sort of physical activity or something actually might make things harder for a few days but actually in the long run might make things better but actually you're the expert in in what's the right approach to take in that particular day and you're there in the gym by yourself you know you're there at home by yourself and it's having that confidence to to navigate your own condition and what you need to do to do all of that so that you do get those longer term health outcomes as well yeah absolutely so it's about so um it's really about being able to be supported to learn. You know, you've got yeah. to think of it as a bit like learning to play a musical instrument. There's so much work and time and development that goes in before, you know, say you're a child of seven or something mm. and you're learning to play the violin. Um, there's seven years worth of love and nurture and development and schooling and culture that goes behind that to make sure that someone can can pick up that violin and actually have the will to play it yeah. and the motivation and all of that and can see the point in it. Mm. And unless you have all of that, okay, you might not need like the perfect family background, but you need probably quite a lot of it in order to in order to make that work. Yeah. And if you don't have those bits going on before then, you're probably best off addressing that before you start to teach someone to play the violin. Yeah. And I suppose what we tend to do at the moment is just launch into teaching people to play the violin without working out whether actually they want to play the violin. Would they yeah. prefer to play the guitar, perhaps? Well, sometimes, I mean, the problem the problem with long-term conditions is you don't get a choice. No, right? exactly, so, exactly. You know, it could be that you're a virtuoso on the violin, <laughs> that you're, but you're, you know, you're, you're rubbish at the saxophone. You yeah. just happen to be given the saxophone. Given the saxophone. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, okay. uh, it, it can be awkward, can be difficult, yeah. absolutely. I think that point around learning is really key. And I know um, from my experience and lots of people that we talk to is actually some of the best things that we learn as patients is often from other other patients as well as from professionals. Those real nuggets that just absolutely make life so much easier. So it feels like this is probably a good point to bring in another um, patient, I suppose, in adverse commas, or they were all people really. Um, so if we pull in um, John O'Broad, who is a patient living with cystic fibrosis um, down in Devon, this is our second person 
called Jay today. We have two more people called Jay to come. So <laughs> this is Johnny Broads. Um, he does a lot of work um, around personalised care, quality improvement. So let's just bring him in and see what we can learn from Johnny. This is the, the change from a system that originally wanted to do everything to me to a system that wants to work with me to get the best for both myself and that system. And I've often felt in, in the past powerless. And I think there needs to be a, a, a power shift to an equal right for patient and the clinicians to engage in making the best decisions possible for me as a patient. Um, I'm not asking to suddenly have all the power given over to me but I do want to have an equal right in that conversation. For many years, the health system taught clinicians, taught professionals to have distance. And they taught that because we understand the emotional hardness of working in such an environment where day by day, people that you're caring for will be incredibly unwell, may lose their lives and the emotion that's attached to that is incredibly hard to deal with. However, we need to get to a position today where those emotions are allowed out, where people are allowed to have the interaction on a personal level. I don't need to know that you go to the squash club. I don't need to know that you play cricket. I don't need to know what your religion is, but I do need to know that you're listening, caring, and using all of your experience to help me make the best of the healthcare, the clinic appointment, to help me make the best of everything you have to offer. And that actually requires relationship. And I know it's a hard thing to do, but please open up, be honest with us. And I know that as patients, we will truly hold that and care for it and respect it in a really powerful way. So back to Jay, what are your thoughts on that? Does that kind of resonate with your experience? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what it made me think about um, is personalised care is is in some ways about thinking about health as much more than um, a kind of a biomedical construct. Mm. It's the, you know, sort of, as our um, uh, national clinical director would say, it's about a biopsychosocial model of health. And to my mind, that's basically saying, well, health is 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 wider than we than we currently think about it uh, as being a lot of the time. Um, so that's on one hand, and then the other bit is saying, okay, well, if we have this new conception of health, it's a little bit like saying, well, we've got this new conception of health. We need to uh, make sure that the health service recognizes that Mm. so it's really about saying well personalized care to me means it's the highest quality of healthcare that you can get um so if there if there are a hierarchy of needs it would be you probably need to have access to your healthcare first um and be able to understand what's going on layer up from that it's about making sure you have really good quality uh clinical interventions and beyond that is saying okay well actually how does that fit with everything? Mm. That's that's got to be the apogee 
of 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 what healthcare is. Okay, so I think that triangle is a really interesting way of of of, of describing it. I think there's also a risk here that this is seen as kind of the icing on the cake and a bit of a nice to have as an extra, which I think we both know it, it it's clearly not because actually, as you know, we said earlier good personalised care probably enables the right clinical care to happen because of like the shared decision making and you know I hate the phrases but things like adherence and compliance and you yeah, know the way yeah. people will kind of follow through with with plans what's really interesting from kind of what you've talked about and what and what Johnny talked about there as well is this idea that there's probably some really complex dynamics and things that are happening around personalised care but actually quite a lot of what Johnny was talking about was those relationships. I know that's quite like a nebulous word sometimes. If it really was just as simple as having better relationships, do you not think we would have done that already? Is it about the people in the system having permission to do it? Or what's going to help take this into practice and kind of make it make it happen? Well, I think I think there are, there are a couple of things here. So I think in, in some respects, uh, you may in the past have had better relationships with with your local GP mm. I don't know I, it's, it's, it's possible anyway because you might have had more time and time is actually a really big enabler in mm. all of this um, if you've got if you've got time to to see someone within a clinic but then also if you're part of that community and you're out and about and you see people anyway and you, yeah. you can say oh hi like how's the dog or whatever you know that that actually means that you're, you're starting to understand something about that person's life mm. more than than you probably would now where we're sort of in this you know probably in a uh, a more atomized state yeah. than uh, you know my sort of idealized picture that I just that I just painted <laughs> of like sort of you know sort of warm beer and uh, and cricket pitches. Um, so um, so I think so I think that's part of it. But then also there's 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 a lot of a lot of things to do with culture and the way that um, we've kind of changed the way that we look at clinicians and particularly doctors mm. uh, over the course of the last. 50 years or whatever um and um you know we're starting from this from this baseline of thinking of the doctor you know doctor as god kind of thing mm. doctor's orders well it's interesting on that though what johnny was saying was that um i think traditionally patients people society really has generally had a lot of respect for clinicians mm. and what what johnny was saying was that by working in a person-centered way actually almost um creates more respect so I think traditionally we might have respected people or the profession for their kind of that core scientific clinical knowledge and now what Johnny was sort of touching on was that actually that respect is about their clinical knowledge and the way in which they can use that clinical knowledge to support people which is an interesting sort of change of actually this isn't about disempowering or um, kind of belittling the medical professional because obviously we still need clinical care as you said earlier but changing the values in which we respect from that profession maybe yeah i think so so i mean it, um the the way the way i think of it is is it's a little bit like any other profession to a mm. certain extent it's, it's about saying okay well um uh in the same way you might respect a, a kind of a lawyer or a or a uh, accountant in for for their professional ability um if you were to use one of those uh, professional services what you want to know is not are they good at their job which is you know you want you want to know that but you want to know can they fix the problem that you are asking them to fix mm. you need to manage them um, and know what you want to get from them 
rather than uh, rather than just sort of leave it for them to say, well, this is what the law says, or this is what the you know this is how the accounts actually work. Yeah. Um, so it's about being empowered as a person to think, okay, well, actually. I need to put my opinion in here mm. and not just accept what I'm being told. And I suppose there's some specific tools out there that can help patients and professionals do that. So there's lots of resources I know out there about how to support patients to prepare for appointments. There's loads of sort of training both nationally and I'm sure regionally around sort of um, things like agenda setting to help all of those things yeah. actually um, kind of Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, one of them is... Uh, uh, sort of a shared decision making um, tool which is uh, ask three questions yeah um, what are my options what are the possible risks and benefits and then how can we make a decision together that's right for me so those are all the sorts of things that can really help that constructive conversation and shift that relationship but I suppose it's about being in an environment and in a culture where actually um, clinicians feel able to start these conversations and patients feel empowered to to do this as well so it's probably it's pretty good time to bring in our third joe so we've got joanne who is from gloucestershire ccg um, lead for personalized care there so let's just hear a little bit from joanne about her perspective of this from a system culture change angle one of the comments we got back from a member of staff which just blew me away was that they said i've always felt it's my responsibility to fix what's wrong with this individual but actually I've realized it's not my role to fix them but rather to enable them to manage what's wrong with it themselves. For me the biggest impact is seeing the difference it makes to the working lives of the staff who are given permission to work in that different way. Being able to take into account what people, what is important to people is really helpful and they can often see the needs and see the gaps but because they feel constrained by a system and by expectations and also sometimes the fear of risk I think that they can often um, feel that they are unable to meet the, the gaps. Personalised care is a culture change and sometimes we can get very uh, caught up in looking at systems and processes but unless we actually understand what the underlying culture is then the systems and processes are going to fall over themselves if that makes sense it's been very much about helping people see the bigger picture and see this as a culture and not just another thing that they have to do or another box that they have to tick you will find that there are already personalised approaches taking place within your system. So be curious about what's going on and going with that learning attitude. What, what, what are you doing? Tell me about it. That's really good. We can build on that and make that even more personalised. And that way then you're giving ownership to the people who are doing the doing rather than trying to impose something that then they're going to feel as an extra burden. So we've all heard that phrase that culture eats strategy for breakfast and we've had loads and loads of strategy out about personalised care. So I kind of feel like I need to ask the say what question here. You know, what's going to make this shift so that we get that culture change so that actually, you know, the strategies around this can start to, to move forwards? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a few things, really. I think it's in part about... Um, 
understanding what's going on locally so mapping what's going on in terms of personalized care what what, what have you got that's going on um and then seeing what impact it's have it's having and and celebrating that so that's that's a, that's at one that's at one point but i think another bit is about um senior leaders buying into the process and saying you know what it's not necessarily about cost cutting by chopping away at things it's about delivering a better quality of healthcare and the 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 reason why that will eventually could eventually le- lead to savings is that you um, start to reduce things like failure demand so failure demand is a concept whereby um, essentially you know it's what is what happens with GPS a lot of, of the time where people turn up because they're lonely or they're socially isolated now it's meant to be about between about 20 and 30 percent of of GP appointments there's no real clinical reason for those people to be there. there's nothing more the GP can do but they're turning up there because they've got a problem which is not being addressed and they don't know where else to go around failure demanders it's not a failure from the individual it's actually a, a collective failure of our system it's the system to address yeah. those issues that actually yeah. the patient feels like actually they have no option but to go to to the gp for example absolutely because they don't know where else to go and they don't know what other what other sources of help there are yeah um so 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 it's really uh it's really about um saying okay well so if this can if this can help uh, as a senior leader if if this can help my system perform better what do I then need to do in order to empower my staff? And I think a lot of it is about embodying the values of personalised care. Mm. So it's about um, giving people time. It's about accepting that there will be uh, there will be difficulties when you're trying to do things new for yeah. the first time. When you're trying to do something for the first time, you might get it wrong. And it's about min- trying to minimise those risks while still enabling people to to take the take the chance of doing something better. So it's fascinating, isn't it? Because everything that you've just described is about what sort of senior leadership can do for, I suppose, the workforce, really. But actually, you could have equally been talking about what professionals need to do for, for patients. So it is that principle of, you know, celebrating all the good work that people are already doing to manage their health conditions, for example, or around personalised care in the system. Um, but also this kind of enabling approach. It's the same set of skills that actually we're asking the workforce to develop to support us as patients yeah. as actually they need to do to support this whole agenda within their own systems. Absolutely. So, I mean, and, and it fundamentally comes back down to this idea of like what health is, right? Mm. So it's about health as being an asset. Health is health is a positive thing. Health is not being ill. Yeah. And it's quite weird in some respects that we call it the National Health Service. But actually, you only ever use it when you're ill. Yeah. Um, you know, it's almost <laughs> actually it should be the National Illness Service in some respects. Um, but um, in the in the way that we've organised things, but really, it's about it should be about promoting promoting health and healthiness as mm. as um, yeah, something something positive, something that you that you have and can use to do something. Yeah, because actually, it's about having your, you know, your blood glucose or your peak flow, whatever the bioclinical markers are, not as a an end in themselves, but as a mean in as an end means to the ends ends the mean. It's about having <laughs> these kind of <laughs> yeah means to end yeah. I can't exactly what the phrase is. It's about having all of those kind of clinical factors so that you can actually go off and do what matters to you, whether that's, you know, going off and going um, hill walking or going and playing in a band, doing the saxophone, you know, kind of whatever it is. And I suppose there's some key skills from a 
professional perspective that actually make that happen. And, and coaching is one of those kind of emerging areas. So maybe this is a good time to bring in our fourth Joe. So this is Joe, who is a health coach from Dudley. Um, so let's just hear from Joe's perspective about some of the skills that she uses to actually put some of this into practice. It is really opening up the conversation from just a, a very narrow, uh, single point to um, everything that matters to them with regard to their health. We're never really sure when we ask a question such as, what, what, what matters to you, where we're going to go. And it may go into mental health issues. It may start touching on grief or loss or depression or anxiety. And I think it's only fair that the clinicians as well feel, A, that they have the skills, knowledge and confidence to know how to manage that conversation and also are aware of what's out there in the community or which services that they can refer on to. Time is often um, a, a, a sort of a stumbling block for a lot of people. Though, of course, even spending two or three minutes and connecting with people in a 10-minute consult can actually do so much. And sometimes just building that rapport and speaking about their dog or their hobbies or their groups can mean that we then use that information later on in the conversation to use that as a, as a motivation for change so that they are still able to care for their dog or walk their dog or attend these groups that are obviously so important to them. The other thing that I often hear, this commonly used phrase of, I don't want to open the can of worms. You know, if I ask this question, where are we going to go with this? And again, it, it sort of it boils back down to where clinicians feel confident about um, having somebody, in a sense, being um, available to pass on to. So in a 10-minute consult, how can I um, open this conversation, shut it down uh, in it kindly, but, but feel confident and reassured that this patient is now going to be picked up by somebody who knows what they're doing? And that's why it's so great to have think workers, health coaches, wellness coaches, social prescribers, whatever it is that we're called, as long as these people themselves as well are obviously you know, motivated and trained in, in, in uh, picking up the pieces from the, uh, the consult. I think it's really good that um, Jay's picked up on some of the concerns that professionals have there, because actually if we're being really person-centred about this, we need to acknowledge the challenges that, and concerns that professionals have because actually if we were looking at patients changing their behaviour that's probably where we'd start with patients as well isn't it so what do you think the impact of these kind of conversations that Joe's been describing would be for you as a as a person uh, as a person receiving them or as a person sort of giving them uh sort of leading go for, them, I go, for, go for receiving and then maybe we'll do more of the assistant bit in a sec okay um so uh as a person um uh, on the receiving end of these kind of conversations, I think I think at first it will probably be a bit weird because mm. you think, what what the hell has it got to do with you? Um, you know, I that's where the rapport comes in, doesn't it? So you've got that relationship and trust. Yeah, you need you need you really need to you need to build up rapport and 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 with you know with the way that the, the system is under pressure, you have to do that quite quickly, mm. um, which which is a challenge. Um, even in in in, uh, in an extended um, uh, appointment, you're probably not going to have much more than thirty minutes. Which if someone's uh, very anxious or, or or depressed or or has any number of other uh, challenges. Um, probably be quite quite difficult to 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 break those barriers down actually to, mm. to get to that human relationship um 
so yeah so it's probably so it's probably a bit a bit strange but then i think if you trust that person and if they if they then have the tools to be able to actually not only to listen to you really well and to understand some of your goals which you might not have expressed to anyone quite yeah. frankly yeah um and then for them to be able to to help you uh put some of those goals into action i think i think it would it would feel kind of amazing really mm. um and it would be it would be a sense of of growth uh and yeah i i think maybe in in terms in terms of sort of offloading your goal like trying to you know getting that off off your off your back um yeah. in some respects and then and then saying no i can do stuff i'm mm. i'm not held back and that's because i've got a, a little bit of help and it's, it's probably not a lot of help in in a lot of cases yeah it's just enough to get people to believe that they can do something differently yeah. i think that idea of growth is really important isn't it because i think what people often say when they're experiencing person-centered care or personalized care um, is that it feels like it's a really um, kind of satisfying conversation in itself so you get that therapeutic benefit of having talked to somebody having that sounding board to you know articulate your goal maybe for the first time yeah but then after that you also get that sense of actually I'm moving forwards and it's really kind of it's quite reassuring and quite motivating to to set those goals and to slowly kind of step by step actually start kind of walk, working towards them so those conversations kind of have a dual dual benefit really don't they yeah absolutely and and, and um I mean it, it goes back to this idea of of what the of what the health system is is it there as a um as a, as a service to fix your leg when you break it and that's it or is it there to say okay well actually we're going to kind of going to be around for the rest of your life mm. and you're going to be around for the rest of your life so how are we going to how are we going to make sure that this works for both of us yeah absolutely that idea of service is interesting isn't it? so um jay touched on um this fear that I think we hear quite often about opening this idea of a Pandora's box. No, it's not a Pandora's box, is it? It's a can of worms. Can of worms, yeah. Sorry. Pandora's box has got hope in it. Oh, yeah, sorry. It's definitely, <laughs> <laughs> definitely not a Pandora's box. Well, it might be, depending on how neighbourly your conversation Pandora's is. Bo- it yeah. could be a Pandora's box. Why not? Uh, we'll go back to the can of worms analogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, that fear of opening this can of worms and then having like more issues than either you can deal with in that 30-minute session or more issues than actually you can deal with with your like professional scope. And I think it's interesting, just coming back to what you mentioned about the health service, because actually a lot of personalised care probably happens beyond what we would consider to be the formal health service. So you've got obviously informal carers, um, there's loads and loads happening around that voluntary community sector. And a lot of it is around just sort of community networks and groups that exist already and that have nothing to do with health, but actually if people can be supported to access them and have the confidence to go, can, can help with some of those things as well. So it's, there's a lot here for healthcare professionals to do and I suppose we've got lots of new roles like link workers and health coaches coming on board and just because it's their jobs doesn't mean that it's no longer kind of everyone's responsibility I suppose I guess. Yeah I suppose so I mean I I think I think it's um, uh, you know a way of thinking about it would be to say um, you know everyone everyone is uh, everyone is meant to abide by the law yeah. Everyone is meant to abide by the law, but but uh, lawyers have specific roles within the legal system mm. to make sure that that the law is law is implemented in a uh, hopefully in a just way. 
and in the same way a, a social prescriber or a uh, uh, or a health coach um, would be the person who's a specialist but everyone can can start to think in this way uh, everyone within within the system everyone in society can start to think this way mm. um, I mean obviously that's a, that's a very health health specific kind of goal <laughs> but 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 if but if but even if you just to look at people within the service within the health service uh, what 1.2 1.3 million people in the country that would make quite a big difference mm. And even if it were just to say, have you thought about someone's wider needs and where you might be able to 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 point them or how you might be able to, to suggest that something might be useful for them yeah. and where that where that service exists, mm. that can make a huge difference. Yeah. I mean what it might do is is in some respects push too much pressure onto these newly forming uh, you know, yeah. services, these link workers that, that are that are just about to expand as part of the primary care networks mm. but i think what it would also show is that there's a need for this yeah there's a, there's a big demand for for actually this is what what people want mm. um it's that kind of support that's lacking i think we talked about some of the new roles there but part of part of this is um actually roles that already exist so um i know we've been talking a bit about health but obviously social care have an enormous role um to play in this there's other sort of statutory services and obviously housing can be quite a significant component and influence of people's health so just coming back to um johnny he's got a really nice example which i think is probably good to bring in here just around what this means in terms of working with housing is another example I was being very unwell, constantly in hospital. Uh, One of the reasons for that for me was actually that at home I had a very damp, uh, a very damp home, lots of mould spores going on. Actually, health couldn't do anything about that. It actually took a partnership between health and housing in order to look at me as a whole person and say, actually, I know I've got partners who I can work with to ensure that you get into a stable, better environment. That in itself cut my hospital admissions by 50%. So that was when they started to look at me as the whole person, not just as a as a, somebody constantly turning up with infections. I suppose what's interesting about that example is this sort of, I feel really, really torn between, you know, we need all of these infrastructures and these networks and these new roles and probably the IT and the funding and all the rest of it. There's a lot of infrastructure need. But also what it sounds like is that some professionals just got into a room together and sat and chatted. And I feel really torn between being like, well, we need all the funding and we need all the the infrastructure, but also actually we just need to give people who we're already paying for as part of our workforce, just enable and empower them and give them the permission just to, to take that time to sit and chat. So I kind of feel like there's potentially some really complex solutions to this, but also potentially some really simple ones as well. I think that's right. I mean, I think it runs a bit like, a bit like with... Um with with people's needs it will run the full gamut depending on where yeah. you, where you are um some people you know uh some areas might just need for for those professionals just to have a, a weekly catch-up mm. around around people who they're concerned about um but even setting that up can actually be quite bizarrely quite tricky yeah, yeah. um it sounds very simple but when when they're when they're a particular um you know, uh, duties required of, of, of different professionals and the diaries are clashing, mm. et cetera, that can be very, very difficult to yeah. sort out. But I agree, it's in some, some respects, it can be very simple. In others, like, 
are we talking about you know sharing data and stuff like that and getting into more yeah. complex areas yeah i suppose there is that underlying will to make this work though isn't it because actually the kind of yeah. conversations that we've been hearing today are probably the reasons why most people came in to work in in health and social care in the first place Absolutely. and there's something about the systems that we've created that um mean that people can't really do that and i think that's actually probably behind a lot of a lot of people who are working in this space is that they know that things can be better yeah um and and they they want it to be able uh, to be uh better for more people mm. than it than it has been so far we're doing good stuff but we can do a lot more that's that's really really going to empower people so that was um, a really good note to end on. So um, thanks, Joe, for, for coming in and having this chat. And thanks to Jono, Joe and Joanne, <laughs> the four Joes, um, for chatting to me as part of What Matters to You Day. Um, I'm Anya Diong, patient editor for the BMJ. Um, you can catch loads more of our podcasts um, from iTunes or anywhere you su- choose to subscribe to. Um, so keep listening and look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>